0: tonight's thought accidentally called the past and I got a disconnected message it's the weirdest thing the other day I had to um, call my dad for some reason just to say hello I guess Tell him about how my uh, my life's been going lately. And uh, I picked up the phone and without even thinking about it, I called his office number. Which isn't really abnormal except for the fact that he's been retired. And hasn't been into his office for something like six years. It's just uh, strange. I picked it up. I haven't called that office number in years. It was uh, whatever it was, 555-4490 was the number without me calling his other number to talk to him. And I didn't even realize that I had called his uh, office until I got this message, this like automatic voice recording that says... We're sorry. The number you have dialed within this company has been disconnected. Please hang up or try again. It was so weird. That's what it's like to call the past. There's like nothing there. Yeah, and, uh, it really was very odd, and and I know that, um, you know, this happens, and and I was actually thinking about this this week, I was trying to find out, through a little bit of Googling, what the name of this uh, effect is, it's like a neuro, neurological effect of some kind, I have heard about it in the past, I was unable to uh, find out about it, in Google, uh. This uh, neuro- neurological uh, just accident where you will recall information that you haven't needed in years. Just uh, completely subconsciously, you'll just reach into your brain and pull it out of the blue, not even thinking about it. And I, I, I've heard of this before, but um, I couldn't I couldn't find out what it was. If you know, let me know. Uh, but it was uh, no doubt very weird because i've i've often thought about uh how do we how do we contact the past um uh, how do we like reach through time and uh try and communicate with people back there and uh and i know that this is uh this isn't really something that we can possibly do as a matter of fact it's it's uh, pretty pretty damn impossible um physicists say that you can travel through time like that is theoretically possible you know you get in you get in some kind of a vessel and you go faster than the speed of light and uh you can uh you can travel through time okay um we actually do have real ways of traveling through time we have elevators um you know before the elevator the typical way of getting up to the top of the building was just um walking up the stairs, or, I don't know, climbing up the side of the building, if you were especially limber, I don't know. And it would take a certain amount of time, say, like, you know, 15 minutes or so to uh, go to the top of maybe, like, a 15, 16 story building, assuming that you were going up one flight of stairs per minute or something like that. Um, That was, that's very slow, you must be a very heavy person. Um... (laughs) But then they invented the lift, the elevator, and you could suddenly like uh condense that time that it took you to get up to the top of the uh the top of the building. And that's that's a form of time travel and you're in a vessel and you're going forward in time. And uh here in Birmingham, Alabama, where I am right now. By the way, this is the Midnight Citizen Show from Birmingham, Alabama. We're live tonight. Thank you so much for joining me live if you are here. Uh if you are In the future, or in the past, you're still here with me live because our realities are synchronizing right now, okay? So, welcome so much, and thank you so much into the studio here in in Birmingham, Alabama. I am your host, Mike Booty. But yes, here in Birmingham, we have, uh, in downtown, we have First Avenue South, First Avenue South is interesting. It's different from all the other uh, streets in Birmingham and all the other avenues because there are virtually no red lights. So I used to um, commute from my house in Crestwood uh, to my job in downtown Birmingham. And to do this, I would go through Avondale and then I would get on First Avenue South and I would like basically jolt to work a lot faster than if I had taken... Second Avenue South, or Morris Avenue, or First Avenue North. Um, it would essentially be the First Avenue Time Warp, and and that's what I referred to it as. It's the First Avenue Time Warp, and I re- referred to it that way with like uh, all of my friends, and we all kind of joked about it. You know, yeah, it's like it's, it is. You get there, and you you like travel forward in future. So, uh, we do have ways of traveling forward in time in advancing time in different ways. Right. And I know that that's like not tech technically like time travel, like we talk about it, but you know, but we can do that. But physicists agree that like, no matter how you sugarcoat it, you cannot travel back in time You just, it's like impossible, you know, um, you know, time can only move forward. It cannot move backward. And this is painful, obviously, because, um, I tend to like the past. I kind of want to go back there every once in a while, um, because the the present is just it's like full of anxiety and paranoia and and in the past you may have made some mistakes, but you know what you did wrong, so you can kind of go back and fix those mistakes. So I mean, it's a wonderful thing to go to the past, right? So again, I don't know if in all of my research that I did on Google, uh, I never found the neurological uh, phenomenon that makes you access dead information like the phone number of uh, somebody who no longer has it Um, but I'd like to think that that is like um, a way that we can think about traveling back to the past Um, and this week i did that i i time traveled a little bit and i did that because i dialed a number that is no longer in service for my dad and what did i get i got a uh i got a disconnected message there was no one there in other words and uh and it made me think a lot about the uh Stephen King's story, uh, The Langoliers. And I, I think I probably referenced The Langoliers more than anybody in the world should. It's not one of his finer works, and uh, the movie is pretty goofy as well. Uh, but that's the one where uh, these uh, people board an airplane that uh, ends up being a time capsule that, you know, and they that transports them to the past. And what do they find there? They find absolutely nothing. They find this dead space, um, dead matter. Uh, matches will not strike. Uh, you know, you open up a can of soda and it's not carbonated, and uh, it's just a dead place. And and it's a completely different way that we that we think about the past because we tend to uh, human beings uh, tend to romanticize the past. They tend to uh, sugarcoat their memories. They tend to uh, erase the bad things that happened and uh, glorify the minor things that happened and make them much better. Um, they they tend to make the the women that they went out with uh, prettier and nicer, <laughs> for instance. Uh, they tend to make the, the, the jobs that they once had uh, not full of misery and heartache, right? Uh, so, uh, but this is not possible. I mean, that's what your mind does. In in reality, the past is, is a dead place. You can't go back there anymore, you know? And, um, it's just like a bunch of dead matter floating around and, uh, disconnected messages on the phone. So I told my dad about this. It was so weird to, uh, to hang up the phone and, uh, and then call my dad's, uh, cell phone number, and, uh, and talk to him. And here he is in the present day. And I told him that what, what happened? And he's like, Oh yeah, what happened? And I said, Oh, it was a disconnected number. Uh, they told me that you no longer work there and that I should try somebody else. And, uh, he's like, Oh yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so I, I just, I thought, uh, uh it's so weird. And it, it also kind of made me sad a little bit because someday you know i'm going to accidentally call my dad's cell phone number and he's no longer going to be there um and so it made me in a weird way kind of appreciate and uh treasure the present right a nice sweet way to start out the show even if it was a little melancholy yeah i don't know (laughs) so yeah but i was i was looking at in, in this uh psychology today piece um in in my research um just wondering uh what like who would like to travel to the future? Because the future to me seems like that would be kind of boring. Like I just, the future is essentially just going to be like what we have now, but kind of amped up on, on steroids. Um, to me, it's like a no brainer that you would just want to travel to the past. Um, and you know, because of this whole rule that hindsight is 2020, you would want to go back and change things. Uh, you know, and uh you would like want to take YouTube back to uh I don't know like 2012 or something and just show people what's what's going on. but uh, I was looking at this, and it's actually uh, on psychology today, and uh it's remarkably even evenly split it, uh, it's something like fifty three, forty 53 people would rather travel to the past while 47 would rather go to the future. And it's, uh, it's oddly split by the way, uh, among the young and, and the old, uh, old people, for instance, uh, would rather uh, travel to the past. It says traveling to the future might be even more taxing on cognitive abilities. And so older people, relative to their younger counterparts, could be hesitant to travel to the future because it could simply be too overwhelming. And uh, this is true, you know, but uh, at the same time, uh, younger people, I think if they travel to the past, like you think about that movie Back to the Past, right? Uh, The kid travels uh 30 years uh into the past and he doesn't know how to deal with it he d- it's like he doesn't understand it he can't even open up uh the bottle the, the a bottle of coke um i think kids would thrive in the future if they were to travel there uh interestingly enough though uh, old people who were conservative would rather travel to the past that's no big deal that's no big surprise they would want to travel to the past because they're conservative and they like things the way they were and they like the good old days and all that. And and then liberals would rather travel to the future to see how things progress and are progressive. I don't know. Anyway, you know, listen, I've, I've talked about this too long. Um, honestly, but you know, it's, uh, it is interesting that, um, I would, I would honestly think that more people would, uh, would rather, uh, Travel to the past. I, I don't know, um, but apparently that it's really, really a close call. Very close. <laughs> So we are here in the uh, in the summer. It is summer vacation. Of course, I am a teacher and I do feel summer vacation quite a bit um, when the school ends. But it's not and I was talking about this in the pre show again. It's not really um, teachers do not really have the summers off, at least not any that I know. Uh, we, We do a lot of things in the summer. And right now, I am teaching summer camp. My wife and I are actually uh, both teaching summer camp uh, all through June. Now, I do know some teachers who are like, no, teach in the summer? Absolutely not. No. And they use it to, like, pursue other interests and things like that. Uh, but, uh, I don't know. Teaching in uh, summer camp, it just seems like, um, you know, it's like I already teach. It's uh, a lot easier to do it. So, yeah, we, we, we do. and. This week I taught a, a theater summer camp, and uh, next week and the week after that I'm going to be teaching a summer camp then as well. And my wife is interestingly teaching a summer camp, and this is this is crazy, um, in the old Brookwood Mall here in Birmingham. <laughs> uh, Brookwood Mall goes all the way back in Birmingham to the, uh, I'm going to say early 1980s. Um, It's a really nice space. It's amazing. It's situated right there between uh, two of Birmingham and really Alabama's uh, wealthiest communities and most populated communities, uh, Mountain Brook and Homewood. And um, that was the mall. I I actually really liked going there almost more than the uh, Riverchase Galleria, the largest shopping mall in the southeast. Um, When I was uh, probably in middle school, it just had a, a really nice vibe to it. Uh, It had a really cool atrium and food court. Um, There was an awesome KB Toys uh, there where I, like, first played the Super Nintendo. Um, There was, you know, obviously a music land there where I would, like, go and get CDs all the time. And then we would have uh, lunch at Sbarro. Sbarro wasn't one of those, like, um, just counters. It was actually, like, a full-on, full-service, like, sit-down restaurant where you would go in and you would get this... uh, these huge slices of pizza. I'd never seen pizza so big before. Um, And Sabara was a novelty, you know, um, at Brookwood Mall there in the mid nineties. And uh, now it's uh, completely, uh, it's more or less completely closed. Um, They did a massive renovation around uh, 2000 when the mall started to slip and decline and, in uh, in occupancy and that was a a really big deal. They had a lot of, uh, I mean, they had full occupancy when they did their renovation, they completely changed it. It was honestly, it was like dark city or something. Uh, You went in there in 2000 after they closed the place for two years and they had completely um, gutted the entire inside the anchor stores and it was the same location, but it was just a completely different building and, and, and uh, you're just, completely unable to connect that a a different structure used to be in this same shell, you know? Uh, so yeah, they, they, they renovated the place in 2000. And of course, like every mall, uh, in my life, I did work there very briefly, uh, Christmas of 2007. I worked at Brookstone selling, um, those neck massagers that look like, um, they look like dildos. There's no other way to put it. Um, I would have to like offer to massage people as they came in and like put this huge phallic flesh tone thing against their neck. It was really gross, but, uh, <laughs> it's like, thank God it was only uh seasonal work, you know? Uh, but yeah, uh, over the years though, uh, Brookwood mall has completely, uh, it's just completely declined. And, uh, and now uh, they essentially rent space uh, to anybody who needs it. Uh, you don't even necessarily have to have a storefront business. And uh, lo and behold, this uh, this week my wife was teaching summer camp at uh, Brookwood Mall uh, in this space that the uh, theater that she was doing outreach for, outreach education. Uh, they rented the space and I went in and I think it's like an old Bath and Body Works or something like that. And uh, just go in there. It's like a huge empty space now. But they've still got all these remnants from uh, when it was a Bath and Body Works or whatever. <laughs> they've still got these, like, counters and bar tops. Uh, there uh, is all this furniture in there. You go in the back and there's this moving shelving, uh, you know, that kind of slides on rails. Uh, and it's just, it's, really, it's just really fascinating um, to go in there to this place that I once uh, essentially called home every saturday afternoon uh when i was in middle and part of high school and uh and now my wife is uh is teaching there and uh my friend dave and i actually like uh were interested in possibly just renting a space there just to like put some chairs in there and like hang out and all that and just create like this weird social club (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it would be more than that, though. I mean, you know, to to have some place to, like, store some stuff, some production equipment and all that. And I actually uh, emailed this lady. We, we we like, ran down a security guard. Because I called my friend Dave up. I was like, you got to come down and check this place out. You're not going to believe it. It's, like, completely empty. There's, like, four stores here. And everything else is closed. Or it's being rented by the theater you got to come check this place out because he's been looking for a place to kind of just house some production equipment. And so he came in and like, we walked around the mall and just looked in all the empty storefronts and looked in the empty buildings. And we went down to one end of the mall where there actually were still stores. I couldn't believe it. They were just like sad little stores. I walked down and there was like a shoe store and I saw this uh, poor clerk just putting a box of shoes back on the counter and like he heard the squeaks of my shoes uh <laughs> coming around the uh coming around the corner and he just like looked back at me and like you know it was like that uh scene in Sweeney Todd with Mrs. Lovett just be like oh my god a customer I thought he was gonna like start singing to me and like chopping up meat and serving it to me or something it was just really weird um and there was this computer store that's been there probably since the uh, early nineties. The I don't know what they do in there. I, they sell you computers, I guess. Um, you can still, uh, buy those in person. So, so we walked around and we tracked down this security guard. The security guard comes up to us or we go up to him and we tell him our pet, our plan. And he walks us, uh, to the security office, uh, and and we have to go on this like walk, long walk through this very dimly lit hallway with like flickering lights, and and uh, he takes us to the security office, and then he just uh, hands us a business card. And so, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if we'll be moving into the Brookwood Mall uh, anytime soon, but it is fascinating to me. Just again, it's like visiting the past. I did not intend to tie this into what I opened the show's uh, uh, the show up with tonight, but it was like a dead place. It was walking around and just being uh, completely dead. And um, and there, it's funny. There is a documentary that's uh, been making the rounds recently called Jasper Mall um, about this dead mall, or almost dead mall in Jasper, Alabama, and it actually has more occupancy than the Brookwood Mall, this small little country galleria out in Jasper, Alabama, actually has more occupancy than uh, than the shopping plaza in between two of the richest uh, neighborhoods in Alabama. It's really wild, you know. And so um, I can't make sense of that. But, yeah, Jasper Mall is, uh, is something that if you haven't seen it yet, check it out. It's, it's really fascinating. It's about my people down here in Alabama getting by. Just a mall. You know, a mall is an important place. It's a community. It's a communal space. And in Jasper Mall, I think you see that. You see these old people on oxygen, you know, coming in in their wheelchairs every day to play dominoes with each other. And it's sad and depressing, but it's still the point that, like, it's a small it's a small town. Where else, where else are they going to go to play dominoes? Jacks? Like, they kick you out if you don't order anything. I don't know. Uh but yeah it is summer. Just watching everyone walk around wearing their summer clothes. And uh You know I, I've never I, I've never really been one for summer clothes. Uh, it's like uh again if you're watching me on the live stream, I am wearing a t shirt right now. So my 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 arms can breathe. But other than that, I'm a jeans guy. I really do not like wearing shorts at all, and I don't know what it is. Um, I don't like wearing jeans or uh, shorts. I don't like wearing... uh, I don't like wearing flip-flops at all. Flip-flops bother me. Sandals. Anything that exposes my feet. I don't like that at all. Walk around. I think it's just like the soreness that you get between your toes. With that little rubber band there and just like chafes. And I'm sure that there are things you can do. I'm sure. Listen, this is, uh, this is an annoyance of mine that goes back to childhood. I hated wearing flip-flops when I was a kid and I've never worn any flip-flops since then, except for occasionally. Like when I first met my wife, she, she gave me some flip-flops and I wore those just to kind of, Make her happy and not start a fight, I guess. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, but I, I just, you know, I'm sure that flip-flop technology has come, like, a long way. But I don't care. I don't like them. I don't like flip-flops. And uh, it's one of those fears that I constantly have of having to go to prison or like jail, you know. I am I'm, I'm scared of going to prison. And it's not really because of like all the bad things that you associate with prison like you see on Oz and things like that. I mean, obviously I'm scared of that. But like it's it really has to to do and I'm very serious here. I'm not joking around. It has to do with flip-flops. They make you wear flip-flops cuz I guess they're like afraid that you're going to like um use the strings to hang yourself or something. I I don't know how you can hang yourself with like a pair of shoe strings. But yeah, they they make you wear flip-flops like with socks all day long. And even though I know that that kind of cuts down on the f- feet chafing, it it's still it's just not a it's not a good look. It's not looking good. I don't like it. So. But we are here in summer here in Alabama and um it seems like COVID restrictions are uh, are easing up quite a bit. You know, this time last year you had to like wear a mask everywhere. And uh, it seems like that's more or less coming to an end, although here in Alabama, I don't know if it should, (laughs) because yes, we are in the deep south and we are in, uh, we are in the south is going to rise again country. (laughs) It's just the way it goes. There's nothing you can do to get around it. (laughs) Everybody down here, like nobody likes to uh, be told what to do. And here in Alabama, something like only 30% of adults have been vaccinated. This vaccine has been out since early February, and only 30% of Alabama adults have been vaccinated. However, more or less, 100% of Alabama adults are walking around everywhere without masks on. So I went to Publix the other night, and I'm walking around. Nobody's got their mask on, not employees, No, no none of the customers, anybody. So I, I was just thinking about these statistics. I was like, by these statistics, that means, like, seven out of ten of these people are just lying. Oh, God. Yeah. And just like everybody is has this look like I see it on my students when they've done something wrong. They're all walking around like they just got away with something like I think I'm in the clear. Nobody's going to like make me wear a mask anymore. You know, (laughs) I didn't get vaccinated and nobody, nobody's going to ask me about it. So they wrote it out. Now they're free to walk around with impunity. Great. Oh. A friend of mine told me this week that he actually works with a former member of the Baja Men. <laughs> you know the Baja Men? The, uh... Who let the dogs out? Wolf, 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 wolf. <laughs> yeah, no. He apparently, uh, like, it just they were talking at work, and it just kind of uh, came up in conversation. My friend looked him up, and it's like no, no doubt he used to be in the Baja Men, but uh, he left the group before that song came out. <laughs> So, and it doesn't seem like it's a sore subject. I asked my friend, like, you know, is he bitter if you talk about who let the dogs out? Woof, 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 woof. And, uh, he was just like, well, he just smiles at everything you say. He's just a nice guy. So, uh, it probably bothers him, but, you know, whatever. Not really. He did get to do, uh, apparently some of the music for the, uh, My Father the Hero soundtrack. You know, that movie with, uh, Gerard Depardieu that they filmed in the Bahamas, uh, uh, it had mu original soundtrack uh album was by the Baha men but uh he left before that i guess he got too big or something i don't know oh man he left he left before their biggest song came out he, he could be a a, a billionaire who boy so anyway i don't know i just had to mention that Yeah, I uh, stayed in at night this week and uh, could have gone to the theater for like the first time in over a year. I Could have gone to the, uh, I guess the drive-in, which would have been nice. It's summer. It's nice to go to the drive-in, but I stayed in. The incentive was too strong to just go ahead and watch a movie on HBO Max that I could have uh, gone to the drive-in and paid like uh, 10 bucks to see. I just didn't want to, though. So I saw The Conjuring. The devil made me do it. This is the uh, third in The Conjuring film series. You know, they make these Conjuring movies. There's like a whole universe, because everything has a universe now. You know, you got the uh, Annabelle, the creepy doll. And uh, The Conjuring, uh, it's a series of films that are loosely based on something that's already bullshit. Uh, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, these uh, two paranormal investigators, who more or less, uh, it's really because of them that we owe every single show on the Travel Channel to. You know, these just dorks who go in and... uh, have these uh spirit boxes that basically just scan through radio channels and you know ask ghost questions and you know like uh, when i was at my old job i was at a place that you know had a lot of history and and uh, i actually volunteered one night to like walk a ghost hunting group around and uh you know, they brought these spirit boxes. They brought all this equipment. They must have brought probably two thousand dollars worth of uh, equipment, and and uh, they they were just uh, they were so nerdy. You know, it's just it's it's like I get it. It's like a fun adventure thing. It's like, oh yeah, we're gonna go ghost hunting, and it's really just an excuse to me to do some urban exploring, to go into some interesting places, and find out the history. Uh, but, uh, some of these play- people, uh, take it way too seriously. And it's because of Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, they made a, uh, a life, uh, they made a living and a legacy off of, uh, essentially defrauding people and, uh, exploiting their weaknesses. And, uh, you know, it's because of Ed and Lorraine Warren, of course, that we know about Annabelle and we know about, uh that we know about the Amityville uh, Horror House. You know, they they went in and did an investigation with the news station from New York of the Amityville House in Amityville, Long Island. And because of their investigation, it made the story like national. And the Lutz family was able to sell their story and uh, make all this money. They essentially came up with it one night over a bottle of wine with the uh, author, Jay Anson. <laughs> I'm getting off track here. But yeah, Ed and Warren, though, uh, basically were just a con artist. And these movies, uh, these conjuring movies, make them out to be utter and complete heroes. And while I know it's fiction, there's nothing really all that wrong with it, I guess. I think there's something interesting to be said right now about why these films are so popular and why they keep making them. Um, And... uh, primarily what I'm kind of fascinated with. So, so the, the conjuring, the devil made me do it. The movie is about, um, a real life case that happened, uh, in the early 1980s where, uh, this man killed his landlord and, uh, he said that he was possessed by a devil. He literally told the judge, the devil made me do it. And, uh, I remember there was this, uh, film that we used to stock when I worked at Suncoast. It was, uh, the devil made me do it. It was Andy Kaufman was actually in it. It was uh, I think it was a Larry Cohen film, and uh, it it was uh, like essentially an anthology film of all these people who like ripped from the headlines saying that the devil made them do something awful. But, but this is a real case uh, that took place, and and I thought the film was going to be a courtroom drama, and quite honestly, that would have been interesting. That that's why I that's one of the reasons why I watched it because it would have been a nice. Uh, detour from the other films that were just essentially special effects ghosts and demons and jump scares uh, this movie I thought was going to be a courtroom drama about the uh, about the kid and um, who was eventually uh, sentenced uh, uh, he was essentially uh, eventually convicted and sent away for four years but it's an interesting case because uh, he it's one of the few times in American history where that, that plea deal was, or that, uh, uh, that, what am I trying to say here? That confession was made that the devil made me do it. And it was actually accepted by the court. Okay, there we go. That's what I was trying to say. So he says this and, uh, but the film just becomes another conjuring movie. It just becomes about the Warrens and, uh, no doubt there is a demon that's making this kid do terrible things. And it has to do with like somebody who's like placing these old Indian totems under people's houses that are like, I don't know. I don't know what it's about, but you know, but the interesting thing is, is that I think these movies are so popular because they portray the Warrens as being these spiritual, badass warrior poets with God on their side who are doing you know battle against the dark forces of evil like like beowulf or something like that and everyone they meet who like is interested in science and who's interested in logic they're portrayed as like not the bad guys but the obstacles you know everything that they do is seen as high and noble and everything that the system does you know like scientists and and police officers is is seen as uh is seen as stupid, is seen as uh you know far sighted and obtuse. And I think that's one of the reasons people like these movies right now, because there's no doubt that uh people we are living in right now one of the most religiously, you know, like divisive times, perhaps in American history. And I think people like this this stuff because it kind of affirms their beliefs that like there is a spiritual world Uh, that absolutely knows no rules and that knows no uh, boundaries and will laugh in the face of uh, logic and science and law. And I think that's one of the reasons why people like these films is because the Warrens are the like original science deniers. They made a living off of uh, denying science and uh, making the police and the scientists, the bad guys, you know, and, and it's interesting to me because it's, this has happened within the last few years because I feel like, of course, there have been films like The Exorcist and, and all that, that uh, you know, The Exorcist is very interesting about uh, saying that the spiritual world uh, deals on a completely plane of existence and indeed laughs at science, and, and I get that. Uh, the Exorcist was interesting. It was thought-provoking at the time. But, like, I kind of grew up in the 1990s watching films where the scientists were treated as the heroes. Movies like, you know, Jurassic Park and even, like, Dante's Peak or something like that. I don't know. Volcano. You know, movies where, like, uh, the scientists were, like, the action heroes. And they were were treated as interesting, not just because they, like, could leap into action, but because they were also very smart. And, uh, you know, the 90s was, like, kind of famous for, like, the pan shot of the camera swooping over the computer terminals and like people typing things and getting data and doing science things and things like that. And, uh, there's absolutely no doubt, uh, that, uh, that images like that, uh, imprint themselves on people and, uh, make them want to go into certain professions and, and pursue certain things in life, you know? And so, uh, And then, and I think, like, things more or less turned around uh, the time that you had, like, Armageddon. Now, Armageddon, if you remember this, this was on TV the other day, so it's, like, fresh in my mind. But this is the best example I can think of, because Armageddon was a huge hit when it came out. It made, like, millions of dollars at the box office. And Armageddon is a film where the scientists are suddenly portrayed as buffoons, as dumb, as obtuse, uh, that's a movie where Bruce Willis and like his merry band of oil drillers, uh, you know, are are the ones who are called to go and I don't know what they're gonna do. They're like supposed to p- plant dynamite on this asteroid headed for Earth that's supposed to explode the whole, you know, asteroid and send it all in different directions or something like that. <laughs> um, and I know it's stupid, but the idea is that you know bruce willis and in the in the oil drillers the roughnecks uh they all know what's going on they all have the solutions and the ideas and every single time the scientists suggest something with their goofy glasses and their bald heads and their lab coats and everything um and they're like their unzipped trousers uh it's all it's treated as a joke Uh, the audience is supposed to laugh at them ha 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 you stupid scientist you know and I think that that may have been like the turning point that suddenly got people thinking in Hollywood like hey people like it when dumb people are heroes I think so I don't know I would like to get back to it, though. I would like to get back to a time, though, when uh, smart people are heroes again. When the first time you see your hero on screen, he's reading a book or something. I don't know. Maybe I'm just I'm being a snob. I don't know. I've been talking for a while, though. Uh, I'm going to put on some music here, but uh, stick around. I'll be back in about uh, eight minutes. This is Mike Booty. It's the Midnight Citizen Show, live from Birmingham, Alabama. See you in a bit. Here at Walgreens tonight. It's weird. I, I uh, went to Walgreens to pick up some in acid and uh, and a cup of soup. And I asked the cashier at Walgreens, he's just making conversation. Hey, how's your night going? And he says, "I'm amused." It's like, what? I'm amused. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm glad. And he said, oh, why? I said, no, I'm glad that you're amused. He's like, oh, okay. Like, he didn't tell me why. I do not know what he was talking about. I think he had, like, an AirPod in his ear. Maybe he was, like, listening to a podcast. Maybe he was listening to the Midnight Citizen. I don't know. Probably not. He was probably listening to, like, the Joe Rogan experience or something. I don't know. <laughs> You know, it's like everywhere you go now. Do you ever notice how uh, it's like? I'm I'm getting into my Andy Rooney now, but uh, it just seems like everybody now uh, is uh, listening to uh, AirPods. They've got AirPods in their ears like all the time now. That's that's how people are getting through their days of uh, just like monotony. They've got to keep themselves entertained constantly. Now we got these AirPods. I used to like dream about something like this, like when I was working at. Uh, in retail all those years ago, I was like, man, it'd be so nice just to have something like a, like a piece of like a seashell, like in Fahrenheit 451, something you just put in your ear and is so tiny that almost nobody sees it. If they're not looking for it and you could just like, uh, listen to other stuff and, uh, and just be somewhere else transported while you're filling out the monotonous purpose of your life. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, not the cashier had a monotonous purpose. You know what I mean. Uh standing there being amused. But yes, welcome back to the Midnight Citizen Show. I got a whoa banquet here. Um that was uh that was a nice music break there. You ha- uh you heard a couple of songs there. First song was called um, Athens by Pierce Murphy. The second one was a nice little instrumental titled Your Eyes by Crowander. And uh, as always, all the music that I play here on the Midnight Citizen Show uh, is available over at the freemusicarchive.org. org. Uh, wonderful archive of free Creative Commons music, completely free to use. Um made possible by the uh, WFMU station in uh, in New Jersey and uh, I do want to remind you by the way you can find uh, this show as well as all past shows over at my website mikebooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen You can also uh, find it on the Overnightscape Underground on SUG, O N S U G dot com. At youtube dot com slash Mike Booty as well. I'm all over the place. What can I say? So crazy, this week, (laughs) I was teaching summer camp, and one of my groups that I had, they were very young kids, like first and second grade were talking. You know how how hard it is to work with kids like that, you know, and I know a lot of teachers will be just like, you know, keep them busy doing something, but I, I want them to learn something. I was teaching playwriting. I was, uh, had them creating scenes this week and improvising scenes and, uh, you know, they weren't, it's not like they were come out, coming out of there doing a uh, Glen Gary, Glenn Ross or anything like that. But, uh, you know, we were having a fun time. All right. Um, but one of the, one of the kids I was teaching, this first grade kid, this boy He has, like, this tiger-stuffed animal. And uh, I'm not kidding you, this thing is a Hobbs. It's a Hobbs from Calvin and Hobbs. Um, Let me see. I'm going to pull this up for all of my uh, online listeners. See, this is when you wish that you were listening to uh, the the live stream. Um, I'm going to show it to you. Look at that. That is an honest-to-God Hobbes. And why am I freaking out about this? So it's from the comic strip uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? Uh, That uh, was published uh, in American newspapers from 1986 to 1996 when it was abruptly uh, taken out, stopped running because uh, the comics creator, Bill Watterson, wanted to do other things with his life. You know, he wasn't like this Jim Davis or um, whoever writes Marmaduke um, uh, you know they they really poured everything that they had all their creative energy for 10 straight years uh, Bill Watterson did into Calvin and Hobbes and he just decided to stop doing it he wanted to do other things and this is the same thing that happened with um, uh, Gary Larson of the far side you know there are just some people who uh, do these comic strips and they're immensely popular and, and people really love them. And uh, and then they just decide to stop doing them because uh, they, they really want to make sure that they're great. And meanwhile, there are other comic strips that have been running since uh, the 1920s. Uh, and uh, they're never funny, but they're just mainstays. And I, I don't know what, I mean, you know. But, like, the, these are your Beetle Bailey's and your Garfield. And I don't want to take anything away from Garfield. I mean, he was deeply important to me when I was a kid. Garfield was really more so than the Peanuts, the very first comic strip I ever read. But, uh, I mean, let's face it, you know, he, he can only step in it so many times. And, you know, he can only, you know, dream about lasagna and hate Mondays so many times For you're just like, Garfield, get some new material, buddy. You know? So what made it so interesting, though, about this about this Hobbs is that it had to have been a black market Hobbs because Bill Watterson um, was notorious for refusing any licensing of his uh, stuff. And I know because when I was 10 years old and, and madly obsessed with Calvin and Hobbs, I, I wanted a Hobbes. I wanted a stuffed tiger to, like, go on adventures with and go exploring with, you know walk through the woods with my jacket on and talk about life and things like that. <laughs> like, that's what Calvin and Hobbes is about. If Listen, if, this is completely escaping your knowledge. You know, If you're far in the future and have no idea, or if you're in the past and have no idea what I'm talking about. Again, Calvin and Hobbes is a comic strip that ran from 1986 to 1996, and it was about a little boy and his imaginary, and his stuffed tiger, who he believed was real, Uh, named Hobbes and um, I actually wrote a paper in college about the philosophical arguments of uh, John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes translating into the uh, comic strip Um, and uh, you know they go they walk around the woods and have uh, philosophical conversations with each other and Calvin is always imagining that the world is a you know, amazing. And he's thinking about all of his adventures. He's a very imaginative kid and you know, things are always just kind of blowing up in his face. I don't know. It's great. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, this week though, I saw this kid, he had a, he had a Hobbs, uh, with him, and, uh, it was tough because I, I I couldn't explain to him the fact that like, Hey man, where'd you get this thing? It's illegal. You can't have this. I don't know. (laughs) um, I just honestly think his parents must have found one. Somebody probably made it or something and sold it on eBay. I don't know. You know, you know it's just driving around uh, the suburbs today and every single church is now advertising their uh, their own summer camps, and these are called uh, Vacation Bible Schools. They're never called summer camps. They're called Vacation Bible Schools. I don't know when this whole phenomenon of VBS started up, where uh, you know during the summer you have uh, kids come to these uh, summer programs where they go and learn about Jesus and things and all that. But I, I did it when I was a kid. I went to Vacation Bible School. I had no idea what was going on because... It was summer, and for some reason I had to go not to school, but to church. And church, my church, when I was a little kid, was actually right by my school. And so I I hated it. <laughs> and it was so weird that we went there, and uh, we only went for like four hours uh, during the morning for like a week. And so I was very uh, deeply confused by Vacation Bible School growing up. But essentially what it is is... is uh, you know, you go there and you wait outside the church with all of your friends and everybody, you know, that goes to the church with you. And and uh, they open the doors and you go in and you have kind of like a big group meeting where the counselors kind of have you get up and sing a bunch of songs. And, you know, like, um, there ain't no fleas on me. There ain't no fleas on me. There might be flies on some of you guys, but there ain't no fleas on me or something. And, you know, you sing all those songs and then you go into breakout groups where you do like, you know, things like Bible study and you do like interactive activities. Like I remember uh, making like a mud brick like they would have made in like Jesus times or something. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know if this is like uh, just a Southern thing or something, but uh, every, every vacation Bibles, every, every school now, every church has a vacation Bible school now, you yeah. know, and uh I actually I, I every time I think of vacation bible school even though I went for many years until I was like uh I think maybe in the 7th grade or something and then I started being a counselor at vacation bible school. Um is probably the first year I ever went cuz we had this old man Mr. Veezy would come by in his pickup truck and he would give us a butterscotch candy. And we would get in the back of the pickup truck, the bed of the pickup truck, and uh, drive. he would drive like 70 miles an hour down the uh, tiny little two-lane blacktop country road, which was probably very dangerous uh, because he had a lot of stops to make. He would pick up all the kids for vacation Bible school, and he would bring us to the church, right? And we would go there, and, and, and inside of the auditorium, again, we would have our counselor, and I remember her name was Carla because she frequently babysat me. And I, I respected Carla, and I looked up to her, and she taught me the song. And we all sang the song. Do your ears hang low? Now you know this song. Um, you know what are the exact lyrics? Let me let me remember them here. <laughs> um. Do your Okay, so, do your ears hang low? Do they wobble to and fro? Can you tie them in a knot? Can you tie them in a bow? Can you throw them over your shoulder like a continental soldier? Do your ears hang low? And this is very odd because I was like, we're in church and we're talking about continental soldiers. I don't understand that. Uh, do your ears stand high? Do they reach up to the sky? Do they droop when they are wet? Do they stiffen when they're dry? Can you wave them at your neighbor with an element of flavor? Do your ears stand high? And I just thought that was so funny, this idea of somebody just having these really long ears that they could, like, tie in a bow and, and all that. We all laughed and everything. Um, yeah, so earlier this year I found out that that, that was actually quite a... Um, uh, that was actually started, as all great kids' songs do, Is uh, a very dirty song that troops would sing around the campfire at night while they were waiting to go into battle. Um, The origin of this song, I'm I'm reading from Wikipedia, the origin of this song is most likely George Washington Dixon's Oh gosh, that's probably a pretty racist term. I don't know if I should say that. Uh, Pinned in 1838. Variant versions with vulgar lyrics include Do your balls hang low and do, do your boobs hang low? Uh, some authors regard these as parody versions of the campfire song. But according to folklorists, the evidence strongly suggests that uh, Do Your Balls Hang Low came first. I mean, that makes a lot more sense, right? Because it's like uh, white why ears, you know? It would make a lot more sense if you're talking about um, your balls. So there we were in church, a bunch of six-year-olds singing about Balls. with that let's go yes we're going to take a trip down to the video street video store on the corner and check out what they've got there they've got some new stock enjoy this and i will be back in just a minute
1: This is just one of Citicorp's nerve centers, its foreign exchange room. Each day it moves a billion and a half dollars in currencies from 30 different countries. Basically
2: what we do is we buy and sell currencies against the dollar. We do it both for our own account and for the account of our customers. The key feature here is speed, trying to follow what's going on in the international markets so that uh, we can anticipate and catch trends as they occur.
1: At Citicorp, nuances, subtle changes in the flow of information are crucial. And that's also true at Exxon, Lloyd's of London, General Motors, Sony. Fortunes are made or lost because of information or the lack of it. Okay, one moment. Cable, Dresdner, Frankfurt.
2: Somebody asked me, what in fact do you do? And I realized that I spent most of my time on the phone, and in order to make people think I was professional, I had to figure out what it was I did. So what I realized was that I I sat there and I listened. I listened and I transmitted, and I analyzed. There's a little bit of detective work. When you hear a little piece of information coming across the Dow Jones tape, and you see a little bit of selling or buying in one of the exchange markets, and see what's happening in the money markets, you suddenly put them together and you say, damn it, that's what's happening. We are computer-oriented in terms of getting communication and being up to speed it's as quick as I can move and I may not be that fast or that slow but it's as quick as I can move the, the rates move more quickly than anybody can can follow it's not a question of, of uh, minutes or even hours a second to second
3: it could be there one minute. it's a change next minute so you have to get the change in right away so
1: if you don't and they get you then you lose the money <laughs> 916. Gen New York, Dollar,
2: Paris, in 22. Communications. Everything here is dedicated to communication. Every single piece of electronic gear. We try to catch trends, to identify them, to put the information together and come up with what we think will happen in the exchange markets. There is, in fact, an information society for sure. In fact, the entire, the entire foreign exchange market is based on information. Uh, what a bank
1: has for sale is information. And this has always been true. Rothschild made a fortune by owning carrier pigeons that brought the news of the Battle of Waterloo to the City of London, and so he had that information prior to anyone else.
4: This is pretty much what you would expect, not special, just acceptable. Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita are once again karate student and teacher, as Macho reluctantly ends up doing battle to defend his championship. The big symbol of Machio's struggle is a perfect little bonsai tree that becomes part of a blackmail attempt to get Machio to fight again. He'd rather lead a peaceful life with his girlfriend, but some bad guys are spoiling for a fight.
1: What's up? What do you give me? Hey, I already gave you the application. Come on. Yeah, yeah, the stakes just went up. Give me the tree. Daniel, don't go. Shut up! Shut up! All right! All right!
3: Just hold us. Don't let go. (laughs) Here, now be please be careful with me. Please, it please be, be careful.
4: And the bad guys break the tree, which breaks Machio's spirit until the tree is mended by Pat Morita. Hey,
3: look at that, it's gonna make it, huh?
4: Hey, make it because I have strong root,
3: just like you, Daniel.
4: The most interesting confrontation in the film is between Mr. Miyagi, Pat Morita, and a sleazy businessman with a ponytail and a mean karate kick, well played by Thomas Ian Griffith.
3: Come on, i you really are.
4: That Thomas Ian Griffith nearly saves the movie. He's a terrific villain. But I had a problem this time with Ralph Macchio's lead character of Daniel macho plays him so relentlessly upbeat that the character loses the credibility of the first film pat marita is fine but then macho's girlfriend seems like a dunce for everything that i liked about this picture there was something i didn't like again it's not a bad film just not special enough for me to recommend
1: well of course the original karate kid was an excellent picture I think very so. entertaining very intelligent however i've seen it and i don't mm-hmm. need to see it again i don't need to see it a third time there was nothing in this movie that is fresh or original, except the villain part You'll three. acknowledge. Oh, that well, they have a new villain. They bring I thought that villain. guy was but pretty they scary. they also had the same old villain. That guy yeah. that keeps running the bankrupt karate studio. He's back again. Gee, I'm back in business. Here I am again. He Here's role. another thing that bothers me. Uh, in all of these movies, Mr. Morita is the most interesting character. Mr. Miyagi. A, yeah. Mr. Mi- Miyagi. Right. He is so Either interesting. We, I can almost remember his name. Yeah, no. He is a nonviolent person. Yes. Who has a Zen outlook on life and who believes that you turn things over. And uh, uh, you don't rise to anger and so forth. Wouldn't it be fun just once if he were able to resolve the problem in one of these movies using his approach? Because the movies all end, they're directed by the man who directed the first Rocky. Mm -hmm. And they all end with a big fight. And Mr. Miyagi always essentially says, oh, you're right, my approach doesn't work. I'm going to beat the stuffing out of you. And that's the solution to the problem. And then after somebody is practically killed at the end of the film, then it's over. These movies uh, pay lip service to nonviolence. And then they just turn into another blood feed.
4: That would be a twist. That would be another way to make the story fresh. I think that I thought what you were going to say is that you would like to see the movie be not about the karate kid, but about the karate adult. I would be interested in seeing him be the real center character.
1: Well, he has a scene in this movie where he does go in, and he's able to defeat everyone, yes. of course, as superior karate. But how about, you know really taking the non-violence serious. That, would, that be, would be that a, would be a nice change. Like you know what I'm referring to when either.
4: I talk about him being so upbeat that it gets a little bit oppressive at times? This little guy?
1: Uh one note performance. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up next, Dennis Quaid plays rock and roll legend Jerry Lee Lewis in Great Balls of Fire. We're
0: Dan- Daniel LaRusso um, Welcome back in to the uh, Midnight Citizen uh, Studio Here on a Saturday night I hope you're doing alright uh, It is uh, officially midnight now here in the Central Standard Time Zone and uh, we uh, just uh, came back from the Video Street Video Store. I hope you enjoyed that little trip there. I know I did. Um, so we had... Uh, we had there uh, some interesting video uh, from the 1980s. We had uh, uh, just uh, some documentary footage of Wall Street traders in the 1980s. I don't know. I find that interesting. I went through this uh, phase in the last year when I wasn't doing shows where I was listening and reading a lot of Michael Lewis books. Um, Michael Lewis, uh, who wrote uh, Moneyball and uh, always uh, like the big short, likes to write about uh, kind of stock market behind-the-scenes books. I don't know. That's fascinating to me. Because I know it's like not a culture that I'll ever be involved in. I'll never be a Wall Street trader. I'll never be somebody who uh, makes it their job and their living to uh, watch other people's money. So therefore, I can really enjoy it like on an entertainment basis. Um, almost like it's fiction, right? Yeah. Um But it's not fiction, of course. I know that the people who are in charge of the world's money supply uh, really treat money as if it's uh, some kind of, uh, I don't know, just disposable confetti. Um, It's really more of an ego trip, and I know, I know. And then, of course, we had uh, Siskel and Ebert uh, reviewing the Karate Kid Part 3. I believe that was from 1989. I think that was when that came out with the two thumbs down decision, even though it was a close call for Cisco. I'll come back that, uh, to that for uh, in a minute. Uh, but for now I, I got to bring somebody up. This is interesting. So there's a, uh, something very old Testament happened this week. And I just saw this tonight. Uh, I was completely inside, a lobster diver says, after being swallowed by a humpback whale. (laughs) Veteran lobster diver, Michael Packard, entered the water for his second dive of the day off of his vessel. It was a balmy 60 degrees. I I don't know why newspapers always have to tell you what the weather was like. Just, Just, you know, anyway. Okay. Um... In something truly biblical, Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. All of a sudden, he says, I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I knew, it was completely black. Packard recalled Friday afternoon following his release from Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. I could sense that I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles in his mouth. (laughs) Initially, Packard thought he was inside a great white shark but he couldn't feel any teeth and he hadn't suffered any obvious wounds it quickly dawned on him that he had been swallowed by a whale i was completely inside it was completely black i thought to myself there's no way i'm getting out of here i'm done i'm dead all i could think of was my boys they're 12 and 15 uh i don't know why i automatically gave him a southern accent just now uh, it just seems like that's something that somebody from the South would do. Um, just get swallowed by a whale. Um, yeah. So somehow, uh, you know, uh, and there's a picture of him there. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's laying in his hospital bed with a ton of patches on him. Uh, he's, uh, he's giving a thumbs up, which, uh, that's what you do after you get swallowed by a whale. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Again, when I was in Vacation Bible School, we learned about uh, Jonah and the whale, um, and, and we always thought of it as a parable. Uh, of course, the Old Testament is full of these things. That how can how else can you take these things as parables? How else can you take like the idea in the Old Testament of a man spending time inside of a great fish, you know, or Moses parting the Red Sea in Exodus? Like, how can you take those as anything but parables? But of course. You know there are people who uh, insist that they actually happened as the Bible said so uh, but uh, you know and I also you know when I was a kid had this idea of like you know the movie Pinocchio where like Geppetto is in sitting inside of this great humpback whale and uh, he's there and he's like lighting a fire like a bonfire and he's like camping out inside the mouth of this whale <laughs> um but apparently according to this uh, guy this uh Michael Packard uh it's just blackness and there's not a whole lot of room to move uh you know inside of this uh inside of this great whale and yes I know I know in uh whatever it's called it's a great fish in the old testament fine But I don't know if you caught that, though, at the Video Street video store. Uh, You saw uh, or you heard Gene Siskel saying it would be an interesting twist on the Karate Kid franchise that they would uh, focus on the karate adult. How fascinating, right? Uh, Of course, if you know, if you're familiar, there is a show called Cobra Kai. It's uh, come out now. It's been on for three seasons. It's a big hit. Um, about an adult Daniel LaRusso the karate kid now as an adult the karate adult and it's a very fascinating uh, show because uh, they essentially uh, imagine what would happen if Daniel LaRusso gifted with all of the mentorship of uh, Mr. Miyagi you know grew up and uh, learned to be and became a father and you know, used his teachings at karate and uh, non-violence and, and Zen to uh, rule his life. So that's very interesting. I've seen the first two seasons of uh, Cobra Kai. I've not seen the third. I hear it's very good. Um, that's all I'll say. I will not spend the rest of this episode of The Midnight Citizen <laughs> going into uh, Cobra Kai. But yes. You know, but Gene Siskel was a genius, though, because uh, he did something that, you know, his uh, companion, his partner across the aisle, Roger Ebert, always made fun of him for. You know, he said, like, you know, Gene, it's your job to watch the film, not rewrite it as you're watching it. Don't talk about the movie you wanted to see. Talk about the movie that you did see. But I, that's that's what I do when I go to the movies. I go to movies because I'm a creative person, and I like writing things, and I like thinking about things. Uh, I like it, you know, personally... Um, when I'm sitting there in the movie theater and especially if the movies bad, you know, I will sit there and I will, uh, think about, uh, what would make this film better. You know, I do that. I do that all the time with movies. I did that in Titanic. No, I didn't really do that in Titanic, but you know, but that's what Gene Siskel always liked to do. He always liked to talk about like what an interesting twist on the film would have been. And, uh. I think I did an entire episode about this a couple of years ago. It's called the, the Genius of Gene Siskel. I can't remember the episode title or the episode number. Excuse me. The episode's called The Genius of Gene Siskel. But uh, I, I talked about this on the show. Maybe not for the whole episode, but I remember talking about Gene Siskel and how he predicted, he actually predicted a number of uh, films uh, before they were made, almost to the point where I'm kind of pretty sure that hollywood screenwriters were essentially taking his ideas and pitching them to studios and making all this money not giving anything back to gene siskel um and they also knew that gene siskel was guaranteed to like them more or less so anyway Uh, but i will find that episode and i will link it um in the show notes for this episode But that is all the time that we have uh, for tonight's uh, episode of the Midnight Citizen show. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Um, If you're watching live, I hope that you're just having a great psychedelic good time. Um, Every week on this show, I make a promise to myself to uh, say something I've never said before. I've never said the line, I hope you've had a psychedelic good time. And there I go. I've said it twice. Once again, just a reminder: you can uh, catch this episode as well as all future episodes uh, over at mikebooty.com/slash/theMidnightCitizen. You can also watch this episode live streamed over at youtube.com/slash/mikebooty. It will be there along with the other past live streamed episodes, and you can download the show. On the Overnight Scape Underground, com, as well as uh, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. Wherever podcasts are downloaded for free. Um, and if you feel like uh, donating a little bit, that's nice. Thank you. I don't have a way for you to do that, but I appreciate the gesture. Swallowed by a whale while diving for lobsters. Keep your eyes open.